Welcome to Unlocking Innovation, a podcast from EX3 Labs in 1871. We'll be talking to leaders in innovation about what keeps them ahead of the curve in today's atmosphere of rapid change and how they cultivate a culture of innovation within their organizations. I'm your host, Adam Wisniewski. Today we'll be talking to Thatcher Schulte, a strategic leader and driver of creative culture. Thatcher has developed a unique business style that leans heavily on collaboration. His expertise in market research, insights, and analytics make him a go-to innovation leader at Conagra Brands, a $7.8 billion CPG company, where he currently serves as a senior director of insights. Thatcher, welcome to the Unlocking Innovation Podcast. Welcome. Uh, thanks, Adam. I appreciate it. Um, that that's that, that, The comment about how big the company is, it's uh, actually pending all results in like two or three weeks, it's going to be much larger because we've announced uh, the acquisition of Pinnacle Brands. That's right. Uh, so the company's going to get even bigger with even more brands, and we're excited about that. Super exciting. Yeah. Yeah. How does it feel internally? Does it feel like it, it, a lot of shifting is happening, or does it feel like it's just a natural uh, The official line is that we are, we're, we're two separate entities right now, and we are operating as competitors, uh, but it is a, there's a lot of excitement around what we're going to be able to unlock with both portfolios coming together. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah, it's, it sounds exciting. I, I kind of heard about the news, and it, it seems like uh, it um, it's just a, another extension, another piece of the growth story for for Conagra. So it's super exciting. So for those of you who who, who for, for those of the people in the audience who haven't um, heard much about um, um, Conagra and specifically what your role is at Conagra, can you talk a little bit about before you got there? What was your career journey like? How did you get from where you you started off to where you are now? Yeah, no problem. I, I, first of all, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. This Absolutely. is my first time doing a podcast. I feel really special that it's with you. <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, um, I, my career uh, my career started probably when I was very young. <laughs> um, I started working for my parents who ran a roofing company when I was like twelve. Mm-hmm. So I would like scrape um, tar off the floor, and that taught me a lot about work ethic and a lot about not doing that kind of work for very long. Yeah. Um, so, so my, my, my life was kind of shaped by that experience of having a kind of a small business in my house. And I thought a lot about what I wanted to do with my career as I started moving into college. And that was like right at the intersection of, um, I think when I moved to Iowa, uh, I went to the university of Iowa for my, for my only degree. And, uh, that was, they had T one lines in the building. And I remember being able to immediately plug the new computer my parents got me into the Ethernet and immediately start stealing music. Mm. So it was a very like <laughs> wonderful time. Like That's right. uh, uh, Napster was around, yeah. so you could use that for like a year or two until that, that went out of fashion. But I remember being very enamored with how fast the Internet was picking up, it, um, and that kind of hung with me. And but I but I didn't follow that path through school. I actually studied politics and religion. I thought I was going to move out to D.C. work in the industry out there. And before I left, my grandfather was like, "I, I don't think you're going to have a very good time out there. There's nothing but liars in D.C." And I think um, at the time, it's probably true. It probably feels like it's pretty true right now. <laughs> um, and when I got out there, I, I realized it was really engaging. It was really exciting. But I I didn't. I found something similar. I found people that were, you know, fighting for things that maybe they didn't believe in and stuff like that. And it just didn't fill that desire. And so I left college with a religion and political science degree, not doing either. And I answered an ad, um, in the paper, (laughs) the newspaper at the time, this is still, this is 2000, so 2001, and there was this ad for this marketing research firm in Des Moines, which felt like the right kind of move. It was too far away to go to D.C., but I was from, I'm from northeastern Iowa, so I thought, well, I'll go to Des Moines. And there was a professor there who was running this company, and he was a, 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 he had a electrical engineering and social psychology background. And I thought, wow, that's wild. And within the first year of working there, we had a, a, a place where there were like 30 people doing interviews with consumers, working for large Fortune 500 companies. Within two years, we had built a piece of software that was like a chat bot mm. that could conduct one-on-one interviews with individuals right. for up to an hour at a time. And we started applying this methodology we were doing like with people, um, and we started building a software program that could conduct the same kind of interviewing. And this is mid-2000s. This is really early. This is yeah. like artificial intelligence. Like wasn't really like it was a thing in like science fiction. Right. And the, I like fell into this place, 
And I, I learned how to interview and talk to people, which fit with like the sociology background that I'd been kind of working in. Right. And I was a pretty studious dude and uh, learned a lot from from all the independent projects. So we started applying projects to large CPG manufacturers like Campbell's and Fritos and Coors. And eventually I started doing a lot of work with Walmart using this tool. And the tool is crazy. You could do... Like famously for for Walmart, we did a study once that had like two thousand respondents in it. Each respondent talked to to us for like forty five. Talked to this computer program for like forty five minutes, and we were able to analyze all this text to help them understand to to apply some strategies for their business. And it was just incredible. And I thought over the over the time period that I was there before I decided to go to Conagra. I just I had learned so much about the intricacies of individuals' comments about all these like minute behaviors that people had. You know, whether I'm buying like why am I buying dog food? Why am I applying to this kind of like pharmaceutical medication? So I had this like vast learning of of people and how people talked. And eventually, I I said I got to go work over on the client side where the action happens. I was sick and tired of just giving recommendations to people all the time. Um, And so I found an opportunity to move over to Conagra, and I started. Actually, because of that Walmart relationship, I moved me and my family down to Bentonville, and that's where I started at the company. Um, and because I had done all these complex projects with this unique software system, um, I had a little bit of a unique perspective on how to do research, and I started applying large-scale learning programs around stuff that would be beneficial to help influence our relationship with Walmart, and not in like a like a dirty way. It's more like how are people's actually how are people actually behaving with your you as a retailer what are they buying right and when are their moments in time and so we my job has always been to kind of look at broad based consumer experiences and translate to the organization so people can look at opportunities for us to go and sell and win right and today that has just meant that a, that my span of influences started to be broader as a you know, as we do collaborative work with others and do cross-functional things. And today, my responsibilities are really about trying to think about how the portfolio is shaped and the role of it for the organization. We have, like, ConAgra has, right now, we have 35 brands. If we come together with Pinnacle, we're going to have uh, north of 60. Wow. And we fit in every single day part, every consumer experience we kind of deliver something against. So it's it's really, really complex, yeah. um, but it's really, really exciting. I think I answered some of that. For people that don't know, ConAgra makes Ready Whip, uh, Hunt's Tomatoes, Marie Callender's, uh, Healthy Choice Power Bowls. That's yep. a great one. I had one last night. Power uh, well, yeah, they're delicious. The Korean beef one, I had that. My wife, she's very nice to me. She'll um, and, and I have some modicum of responsibility for what that looks like somewhere upstream. But she'll like set the box out when she has a new one. She'll be like, oh, I really like that one. I'm like, thank you so much. You know, I really appreciate that. Yeah. That's, yeah, I need some personal validation when I get home. That's very nice of her. <laughs> Absolutely. And it's, you know, it's fascinating. So I want to hit on a couple of things that you said. Yeah, um, sorry, like life story in five minutes. <laughs> one of the things that's interesting, because we it, it seems like we have a couple of um, points of data on the overlap side, especially related to college experience but also it's interesting because i um i work for a family friend's business for 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 um uh, removing tars and removing roof shingles and it was hard work like people you know i I have a nephew that uh, was talking about um uh uh, summer jobs and like complaining because it was just I don't know some, something just like cutting grass or something pretty pretty simple. I was thinking back to my summer jobs and that was one of the most difficult things I ever had to do. I mean it's 110 degrees on a roof, removing that off. So that <clears throat> that piece about the 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 um, the not only the work ethic that it taught you, but the fact that you had a family business, I'm sure had a, a huge impact on kind of you as a person. It sounds like um, it's it's something I probably don't talk about enough um so without getting like too much in the weeds like my father-in-law who actually lived across the street from me because me and my wife grew up across the street from another um ran the air air traffic control tower for the city of waterloo so he was like they call we called him the air boss like in the neighborhood he's the air boss (laughs) and my dad ran the industrial and commercial roofing company in Waterloo or Northeast Iowa. And my mom ran the office, which basically meant my dad ran the outside business, like the business, and my mom ran the internal part of the business, right. kind of. Um, and they had bought the company out from the previous owners when I was, I want to say, like 12 or 13. 
And every single day, because we still lived a very traditional, like, come home, eat lunch, all that, or eat dinner, all that stuff. And they would come home and they'd just be yapping about the business all day long. And so stuff I didn't understand. I didn't understand, like, employee regulations and rules and stuff like that. There was always a discussion about strategy, where the organization was going, how they were going to grow, who was doing good work, who wasn't doing good work. And it, it not only taught me the, the work ethic, because it's hard. I mean, like, roofing is a pain in the ass and stinks and it's terrible and it's hot, all the things you said. But it was also just like a, when you have a family business, and this is true of when, because at, at Quester, I eventually got to a level where I was like leading a lot of the research function. And it was that probably at that moment in time, and that was right around like 2008 to 2010, really great economic period for everybody <laughs> right. uh, looking back in the past. When you run a small business or where you're responsible for people in a small business, there's there's a lot of ownership for the the success of the people in the organization. And by success, I mean, like, can they eat? Do they have shoes? Like, right. you get, like, really hyper-worried because there's small margin environments where you can really make sure you're taking care of people's lives. And that's – that to me creates a different set of work ethic because you're not just working for yourself. You're working for everybody else. I'm sure you feel the same way with your own business. Um, It's also one of the reasons when people are like, Hey, why don't you go out and create your own company? I'm like, you don't just create a company, you create like livelihoods for people and you gotta, you gotta be very responsible for those. And that's a lot of, I'm okay with just like watching the five I'm responsible for at home. So like (laughs) that's enough for right now. So it's, it's interesting because a lot of people might be asking, well, what does that have to do with innovation? And I, I actually think it has quite a bit to do because some of the top innovators we've interviewed at various corporations ha- have some type of roots in entrepreneurship, even if it is is kind of through their family, through a family business where they've had a chance to see how to be a little bit more scrappy. Mm-hmm. Because I think today's definition around innovation, especially in a corporate scenario, is really about how to be able to kind of lift yourself up by your bootstraps, be able to kind of go off of, uh, on a little bit of a tangent to a certain extent in terms of bringing in a little bit more of a, the disruptive thinking, which yeah. um, isn't, isn't usually too, too traditional. So, Well, large organizations... Um you know, it's hard to it's hard to hide in a small organization. Um, you can kind of do lackadaisical work if you're somebody that's doing a very low menial task. But in a small organization, if you aren't delivering what you do plus the two or the three other jobs you probably have, you're not going to be very successful. In a kind of a larger bureaucratic organization, is something that ConAgra struggles with, and a lot of other companies do. Um, the bureaucracy can lead to complacency, and complacency and consistency around or inconsistency around performance or just trying to hide out every day and just kind of like show up and be a seat filler it's possible in a large organization and if you want to talk about like ways to not innovate it's like having somebody sitting there who's not doing what they need to do to provide value and then in terms of being able to translate kind of the disruptive thought the systems and processes and measurements and all that kind of stuff work against that you almost have to have Somebody said courage the other day. I don't think that's the right kind of term. I think it's a, like an attitude of like, well, it doesn't have to work that way. And being open to that kind of thinking of maybe I can do something different or better. This is always the way we've done it. Let's do something different. It's almost like curiosity. Yeah, curiosity for sure. Um, and it's But it's also like going like this normative rule that we're following here. I don't find that to be useful other than keeping me in some sort of a pen or something like that. And that, right. that's, def, that's definitely something we've by we, I mean ConAgra has spent a long time over the last three years with new leadership talking about external focus, broad-mindedness, being able to kind of break down the bureaucracy of what a large organization can build up over time. Absolutely. And one of the things that I noticed about you immediately when I – like literally day one when we met, I'm like – this guy's going to be a game changer. We follow this gentleman's career. Because oh, that's very nice. <laughs> Only because, <laughs> I, you know, we, we meet a lot of corporations and a lot of people, you know, even high up in the food chain at various corporations that don't have a level of passion about what they're doing. And it certainly doesn't come across on a day-to-day basis. Instantly when I met you, I could tell you, you were thinking outside of the box. You were thinking about all those things you just mentioned. Those were questions that you were asking. How can you constantly be you know, more forward thinking in terms of looking at either technology side or a process to you know, improve how you operate, which has always been admirable. How much did technology infuse your thinking towards innovation even back then because you didn't start off in technology. I mean, did it help you gravitate towards it or were you always in the tech? Well, I would say um – 
you know, the company quickly turned into a technology company, like you know, versioning that software, that that piece of artificial intelligence software, interviewing back and forth. We also built a text processing tool that's like to this day, like I don't think people appreciate it because nobody likes to read. I love to read. Like I, I think the fact that I like to read and I decide to read actually separates me from some people because I spend time reading what people say. And the technology that we built helped us kind of take hundreds of thousands of comments and cascade them down into like basically the most essential comments. But going back to the technology piece, I think when I, my parents never had enough money for me to pay for me for to go to school. So that computer I referenced, they had the guy that built all their computers for their business. He built me one for college. It was like a 60 megabyte computer. And I remember within the first few days of having AOL instant messenger at home. And this was only for like a summer before I moved to school. I remember thinking to myself, I bet I can't break this thing. So why don't I dig around in it and see what it, see how it works. Now, I'm not a very smart guy. I don't understand how the computer actually works, probably, to a certain extent. But somewhere in the the scheme of that, I figured out it was like, like the honing beacon for me was like, there's it's just zeros and ones. And once I knew that, that it was just built upon the simple principle of, of yes versus no, and then everything else just got complicated on top of that, I was like, wow, okay. So that's how that technology works. And then I started kind of gravitating to more and more technology. And it started with the plugging into the music, trying to find things or learn things. But I just think that, you know, at that time, Google wasn't even around. Like, I remember hearing about it and being like, wow, that'd be so useful if we had that. But I was always enamored with what I, I I felt like I was hearing about some of the technologies beforehand, not through like regular news, because the, what the internet did in those early days is you could go learn about anything. There was stuff there. It, it just wasn't like all these lists of these things where people were granting granting you to go there. So I was just – I have an insatiable curiosity around just stuff. Right. And I think I gravitated towards technology because that was the fastest thing that was moving around us at the time. Right. Um, and so as I transitioned to, to a role where I was using technology to interview people, I was like, oh, wow, this is really neat. And I remember in 2005 at the old company – I had said to a couple of my boomer leaders, I'm a millennial right on the tip, pretend I am, <laughs> but officially I'm, people call me a xenial, but I'm not, I'm a millennial. The, I said to the boomer people, I was like, hey, we're doing all these consumer tests around advertising per, and positioning and stuff like that. I was like, we should test advertisements. And I think we were working with like TBS at the time and the boomer leaders were like, nobody's going to watch, nobody's going to watch video on the internet. And I remember wow. thinking, wow, that's insane that, that they said that. That's insane that I have to leave this meeting now and I have to like sit with this like dumbass theory. Right. <laughs> and right. within a year of that, YouTube launched. Or within like, so I was like, I can't be wrong about this. Right. But I felt like there's a couple of those pieces, like as I've looked at things over time, where I've been like, well, I'm, maybe I'm too early or maybe I'm not dealing with the right kind of people or maybe I'm just not in a position of power. Yeah. Interesting. I don't know if that's where you were trying to go with that, yeah, but but that's my that's that is a, the integral part of me is somehow I my formative life experiences moving into the workforce was built around as the internet quickly sped up right because by the time 2004 2005 you know i'm starting to do large-scale research research studies with hundreds thousands of people um all done through the internet so right um so it's such a fascinating time because i I know it shapes you and i probably in, in terms of kind of age range are probably the last kind of generation that Still had one foot in, in really an analog. Yep, analog. One foot in digital. Analog childhood, digital adulthood. Yeah, that's right. So um, I think that's always interesting, especially on the speed and pace of innovation, and in seeing that firsthand how it changed. Yeah, literally going from in high school, most of my papers, you know, I, I could still turn stuff in by you know writing, you know, uh, handwriting papers. Yeah. And then in college, everything is literally, you know, on the computer. Yeah, so. we had a learning lab in, in high school, and I took Spanish. And, like, somewhere in fourth-year Spanish, I was like, there's Spanish translators on the Internet. <laughs> so I'm uh, going <laughs> to utilize this. Up, right. <laughs> right. So, I mean, like, the the, the, the close to 4.0 grade point average I had in high school uh, is probably not really <laughs> accurate. <laughs> Did a little bit of loose stealing. <laughs> 
Um, so, so that that's interesting. I, and again, on the innovation, talking innovation, I'm fascinated with with that journey because I think a lot of it shapes the way you view. Yeah. Um, how you've helped the corporations and even in the scenario of the, the small business. So you, you work for the research and insights company, uh, Quester, for about nine years, right? So talk to me a little bit about the difference between that as a small company, that environment, and also the scenario of moving to the larger corporation. Well, I think the, um, the small company, if I'm going to think about that, the small company, I was, I was actually learning to be a functioning like workforce participant that was part of it um but you you know the thing that you you don't mind challenging orthodoxy inside of a small organization we would have wild and crazy ideas that we would try and implement and there are really no rules like as long as we're selling work and trying to make the product better it was all good and and I think it, it required a group of people to work tenaciously to do those kind of issues. But the, the constant problem at a small organization, unless you're growing, and you guys um, are kind of a, a new kind of bellwether in my mind of thinking about EX3 Labs, just like running into like a successful small startup. Um, at the time, I got put into a position very early on in my career where I was responsible for delivering dollars. And then that, st- that started with working with clients. And managing those accounts and being kind of a salesperson and a marketing person, but then it eventually became, uh, can I help figure out how to get serious funding and stuff? I like did not understand, like, and I was not well equipped for. And I'm going care to right. Well, I I I like things that I don't know how to do. Trying to figure out how to do them, so I like that part, but. Going in and trying, I didn't even really understand the concept that, like, when I'm talking to someone at some investment bank in some building in downtown Des Moines that I didn't even know, I, I was really pitching them for our livelihood. I didn't understand. I was just like, "This is how the business works. Right. This is the value I provide. Here's the companies I sell to." And they're like, "Yeah, we deal in agricultural investments." And I'm like, "Okay, so this is going to be kind of tough." <laughs> then, and, and so, but that so it was always a constant struggle around money. Moving over to the the large organization side, it wasn't ever a pro- It's not a problem about money. Sure, we have budgets and things like that, but it's a, it's a problem of where's the weight of the organization leaning, mm-hmm. and and how can you how can you play into that or get that going? I think a lot of things happen at a company that doesn't have strong direction, and I think I felt a little bit of this when I moved over initially, which was like everything mattered. Um, everything needed to be invested in, and it was really hard to drive any kind of innovation when you're so disparate. I think today the distinction that I would kind of provide at a, at a larger company is with high-level leadership saying this is where we're going to go and business processes that you believe in. Like we have a – my group's responsible for kind of laying out the growth philosophy for the organization and where can we go and how to, what should, where should we innovate and how should we innovate and what are the areas of the portfolio that are good versus bad, things like that. If you, if the company's aligned to that direction, you could be very successful because you're, there's a kind of a, a process for prioritization. And some of that's limiting, uh, because you can only spend time and money on the things that matter or that should matter. But if you can get precise about where you want people to spend money and time on, that there's actually a, a level of freedom that gets unlocked in there because you know what your guardrails are. I think a lot of people talk about sometimes the best way to innovate is to get caught inside of a box, like you have all these parameters and you got to figure out a way out. <clears throat> that's that's the problem solving part of it. It gives you focus and direction, causes the need for great creativity. Absolutely. Yeah. If you can identify that, right? Yeah. Some some people just get stuck in that box and they can't find, figure out a way out. <laughs> well, <so>. yeah. <laughs> well, I don't just I don't like being in boxes. <laughs> <laughs> Makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> Good stuff. So, so I want to talk about data because I've been fascinated. I had no clue. Um, you know, obviously everybody knows kind of agro brands is kind of you know everything from you know, we talked about healthy choice to ready web. Yeah. Um, data drives so much of the decision making and drives the innovation piece so much t- to a degree where I had no clue how deep you guys got with with data and analytics and how you evaluate consumer markets. Can you talk about the importance of data at, at Conagra Brands and how it kind of shapes what you do? Yeah, um, without you know giving away our secret sauce, as some of our leaders like to say, I think 
uh, one of the largest changes we've made is to move away from validation testing on like ideas. So like I grew up testing concepts constantly, um, testing ideas constantly. And that's, that's fun. It's fun to test ideas, especially if innovations like built around this, like, Oh, this like imaginative, creative, what can we make kind of space. But what that does is it ends up, you end up following a boatload of loose ends that don't matter. So the biggest focus has been on this idea of as being demand centric. And what that means is like, we have enough data and information out there in the world to figure out where growth is. And it can be really granular. Like we're looking at sales data uh, or consumption data. Like what do people actually buy and eat? Like there's tremendous services where you can buy flat files worth of data and, and learn all about the purchase behaviors of individuals uh, without looking at the individual. I will be clear, like all the recent news about like what can we track and all that. And we're all about like being anonymous, but we can track behavior and knowing where there's growth within certain categories in which we participate is a distinguishable asset for us. Uh, a couple years ago when we came, became ConAgra Brands and um, had our investor day, we talked about this strategy called pockets of growth where we believe in every market growing or otherwise, there's a pocket of behavior that is growing faster than everything else because food consumption is built primarily upon the, 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 the population of the United States and the growth and changing dynamics and demographics of that population. Just what it is. So we make an insane investment in understanding the, the eating behavior of those folks and we do maybe less of investment but more of a curiosity investment in all kinds of other syndicated data that's available. And we use that to help show where we think we can grow long term. It's a it's a process. Now, it wouldn't what's funny is when people come in, they're like, the senior leaders don't look at this. And you're like, well, some of them do. Some of them like are data hounds. Like, I remember when I used to service clients like this, it'd be like, when it got to a certain level, it's like, I can't look at all this. These guys, if you don't come in with the data, they start asking questions, seeing if it's there or not, seeing if it's, if it's got holes in it or not. Have you thought it through critically? And today it's not just a, a definition for the data, but it's, you have to show the critical thinking power to get into a room to present an opportunity to the senior leadership because they know growth is hard to come by. We're in a growth low foods, a low growth environment. And so finding it is really, it's a, it's, it's gotta be a methodical process and the people that are building solutions around it need to care deeply about what is going on within this growing area of demand and how can we dimensionalize and potentially capture opportunity within it. Right. It's very esoteric and conceptual a little bit, but I don't know. We just make a huge investment in data. Yeah. We just do. And that, that comes from a little bit from, comes a lot from my boss, but also um, when I started off in the Walmart team in 2011, 2012, that's when they first started releasing their data through Nielsen. So, big game changer in the food industry for a while you couldn't see like 30% of the purchases that's what like Walmart made up in terms of you know the the purchase capability and once you knew what they what they represented in the data set you kind of saw most of eating in America and knowing that you have that there is a it's a game changer because if you wanted to you can look at all consumption which we've done and it's it has really helped us think about what do people need and how are their needs needs changing and it's interesting because food is is so habitual for a lot of people like i don't even remember what i ate for breakfast yesterday but you're looking at it from kind of a a a thousand foot view and you can kind of see everything right over a time period what has been kind of the most interesting discovery that has come out of those those stats oh i got a million (laughs) no i mean like uh I, I like that you said interesting rather than insight because that's what everybody throws at me because I'm a director of strategic insights or whatever. And uh, it, <laughs> so it's always something relatable that you haven't thought of in a while. So I've done a very large scale study, or we have done studies on, for an example, like we know what it's like for you to eat from birth to death. Uh, that's not how we laid it out. It's not called like the birth to death study. That's very that's good. It's dark. <laughs> it's very dark. <laughs> first meal to last meal yeah right well we can do that if you want (laughs) and we do it by region and all kinds of other fun stuff uh but it it basically largely tracks like you start spending a lot more money when you have like three kids like i do i have i have a 12 year old 10 year old and a six year old 
And I'm kind of like, I'm like the biggest consumption household there is, and I'm just going to get bigger until they leave. And a lot of people don't, when they have kids, they don't think about the fact that the kids are going to be with them for 20 years, because that's not a concept you really understand, because you're only into your early 20s normally. Uh, but but there's there's a whole host of things that happen between that time you buy your first apartment to that time you retire with your significant other. And... It, it happens – I don't even think about it that much anymore because it's been a project been around for so long. But last week I was talking to one of my employees, Michelle, and we were – I was telling them a story that I knew that was part of this that people would relate to. And I said, you know, when I was young and I was dating my wife, I go – when she would come home, I'd cook for her every day. And I would always buy these like frozen bagged meals, the two-person bagged meals that we sell a lot of right now. And I always cook those bagged meals for her and I'd be done at the end of the day and I'd like lay it down. And I'd be like, ah, I'm a great cook, right? <laughs> I'm a great cook. It's just like first cooking experience, you cook for your significant other. And and I, I'll never forget this. She laughed at me because she – she doesn't like when I'm right, Michelle, and my wife too, probably everybody. Uh, but she goes, that's so funny. My first boyfriend, when we were living together, I like picked up like a Bertoli meal or something like that. And I had that exact same experience. And I go, the only reason I know that is because we studied that. That is literally like a consistent thing because when you're like 24, 25 and you're trying to impress that other person, it's it's hard to tell them, I actually only know how to make macaroni and cheese. Right. <laughs> I can make an egg, maybe. I know right. how to do toast and cereal, peanut butter for sure. But cooking with a pan, this is all new to me. Yeah. <laughs> and it is funny like that somehow we were all like, no, the way you do this is you just freeze the food, you put it in a pan, and you give them a little modicum of cooking, and that'll feel like you're building the skill. But that is it. You have to like learn how to cook frozen food first, then eventually you know you can maybe figure out how to do a steak on a grill. But that's the one that I always bring up because I think it's a universal experience. Um, the, 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 the way we talk about that, though, is – uh, I'll throw up a slide and I'll say, you know, you don't ever start sharing a freezer till you start sharing a bed. So like, that's like the first step. And like when you start using the freezer is when you have, when you're sharing sheets with somebody else. So that's a, that's a fun one. I got all kinds of other ones. Well, if you, if you have specific interest. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's, it is fascinating. I think you mentioned to me at, at one point, I think there was an example around geography, around how how habits change, like especially flavors, specifically of different. Um well, food tends to move from the city centers on the outside of the country inward. That's one example. Um, one of the things that we've done is uh, goofy thing. Uh, I worked with the IRS and bought twenty years worth of. Uh, W-2s moving from state to state to figure out the migration of people because there are certain recipes uh, in each individual state that are emblematic of that state. So I'm from Iowa. We have um, the uh, 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 walking taco is the, our most popular meal. So like some people from Minnesota, maybe over here in Illinois would know that, but it's like very popular in like baseball time or like hockey games. People will cut like the side of a Doritos bag, drop hamburger in it and cheese and stuff like that. And typically when I mention this, somebody from down South, typically who's lived in Texas at some point in time, they'll go that that's Frito pie. And I always say, yeah, that's worse because it's not a taco. <laughs> a taco is great. Like a Frito pie is like chili inside. Anyway, that's just me. I like the me, walking taco better. It's me slagging off people that love chili so much inside of Frito bags. But there are those kind of consistent like things like uh, like funeral potatoes is a thing. Tater tot hot dish up in Minnesota is a thing. Um, and us knowing those individual recipes and also knowing how people move or, or, or move over time or go move to different city centers is actually useful to, for us to understand like what kind of flavors will my great right um and so we look at the you know different population centers where flavors come from um how they might move through through culinary institutions and also through just family recipes so it's a uh, that that's a that's a big investment because i think what's happening today is that folks do have like a kind of consistent regimen and what you got to fill if you're a family but there's a lot more trial today because of the availability of almost everything at a at a at a just a finger a finger snap there's food available all over the place and it's accelerating in my mind because i don't remember when i could go into a, a grocery store and i and like buy like ramen stuff like that's crazy i i didn't realize that i mean i 
ramen when you're in college, but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about like serious ramen now. Right, 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 right. The adult ramen. <clears throat> yeah, the $18 a bowl, $20 a bowl ramen, that, right. that kind of stuff. <laughs> so so you mentioned how data is, is in, so important in terms of making and driving decisions. If, the, if a company was listening today and really wants to drive innovation within their organization, but they want to be data-centric in terms mm-hmm. of decision-making, what advice would you give them? Well, one, you got to acquire a lot of it. You need to acquire enough of it to understand what the, the kind of the size of the demand is. Um, then it needs to be, you need to look at it through a non-orthodox driven lens. So, for instance, uh, everybody knows on just in the street, in the in the food ser- in the food industry, like what the daily what the sales are, but they're only looking at it at a certain level. And the reality is that the growth is actually much granular than that. So that what the data allows you to do is like look below the orthodoxy of like some def- defined category. So like we we sell a lot of like frozen meals. If you just look at frozen meals over time, it may or may not be performing well. But when you go down to the individual SKU levels and regroup products, then you can start to learn a lot more about what's actually going on. And I just sort of feel like. If you consider like demand as like a cube, our mindset is like you can tip the cube in 15 different ways to look at where the demand kind of like looks through a different lens or a different landscape, and that allows us to find different ways in. So we're always finding, we're always looking to find different ways in to tap into some thing that we see through macro forces. So it's a it's probably a combination of having the data and also a, a principled process for what you want to do with it. Um, when people ask me what our secret sauce is, I just sort of say we choose to do the things that other people don't choose to do. We try to do the work that's harder, that's more complicated, that's richer, that's deeper, that's more complex because we feel like that's going to give us an advantage by having a greater set of curiosity and, and process. Absolutely. And, and that's shown up for sure. Um, so what insights, I mean, as far as kind of looking to the, the future, what insights or trends are you excited about, either in the, on the data side or in terms of consumer behavior with food or various technologies that you're seeing kind of come down the pipeline that might be shaping consumer behavior? Um, I think... Click and collect uh, from an e-commerce perspective is the thing that um, that is the, it's the hottest thing right now. Um, I, I guess I'm probably stealing this from um, Scott Galloway, who I steal a lot from. Um, I think he, he he mentioned on a re- recent like Pivot podcast, like click and collect has is like the best strategy for Walmart ever because it can be. I'm going to word it softer than him. It can be difficult to shop at Walmart at times. It's not a great experience all the time. And if you can, but what's great is like their the brands, pricing, uh, the fact that it's a freaking warehouse. It has everything. If I can click and collect my groceries and not walk inside, I've solved an insane problem for consumers. And because I mean, the, the, I can only speak from my personal experience, but we shop all the time constantly for groceries in my household. So any part of that that makes it faster is is just a huge win. And I grew up shopping a high V where I would like after I got done, I would like go through the the like the place at the side or whatever and like the guy would come out and he'd wheel everything out and put it all in my in my trunk and like once I moved down to Arkansas that like went away and I was like, oh God, that service is so there's also this like thing where you're like, my stuff's waiting for me. I'm excited. I got like stuff. Yeah. Uh, and I didn't have to like go and procure it, each individual thing by myself across this 2,000, 200,000 square foot facility. So I'm really excited about that. I think if I think about the more imaginative stuff that I, that I give you a lot of credit for, for opening my eyes up to, um, you know, because I have the kids in the house, the gaming and the entertainment as it relates to the mixed reality, I'm like, I cannot wait. I cannot wait to watch a football game in my living room and like be able to look at three-dimensionally. Like That seems so neat. My, if my kids can jump inside their Minecraft universe, maybe my wife won't be so irritated. <laughs> maybe she will see that they're actually building worlds rather than you know just screaming at each other and they're constantly on their screens. Yeah, and she might jump in with them. Who but, knows? But, yeah, I mean, she's got, I mean, like I had to, I had to spend, I was like, this is virtual labor ghost that's all it is <laughs> like no there's good she's like you got to make them do something though because they're constantly like just fighting each other so eventually you know you teach them to build a golf course or like a home or something like that right, <laughs> right? Right. so they're doing something together but I, i'm i hold a lot of promise and excitement for the idea that the world that we're going to participate in won't just be physical anymore that seems really it seems very exciting to me 
what the potential that is. Um, other than those, uh, technology-wise, I mean, my self-driving car is not here yet. <sighs> I don't know. I don't know. I, I yeah, my, my Honda's got some features. They just they, they irritate me mostly. They brakes without me asking, and I don't really appreciate that. Do you think that autonomous delivery will be there before the, the actual uh, driving cars? Self-driving cars, I should say. I don't, well, yeah, probably because the industries and companies run everything, right? So I, I guess eventually. Uh, as it relates to the food industry, I think the thing that's there's a like a, there's a middle there's a tweener stuff because like sixty to eighty percent of everything that you buy is like a staple can get repurchased on like the reg and whoever figures out how to like do autonomous um, pantry management. That feels like something that's sort of near. I don't know about the cars though, man. I. I think this is getting a little bit out over my skis, and I'd be talking about competition, which is a little bit – I don't want to get too detailed. But there's companies that have built up infrastructure around shipping and delivery, distribution, um, bottlers and snacks companies. And it sort of feels like that's a there's a lot of potential there for those things to be – Automize a little bit, but those drivers serve a dual purpose. They don't just drive; they drive in stock. So you have to have both of those features working together. I think for that to really work, you know, Amazon's make Amazon has huge capital outlays and all kinds of things. And you know, I think Walmart's probably looking to diversify how their footprint operates. So there's some things that have to happen in between before we get you know autonomous delivery to our homes and things like that. But the, the parameters for what have to fall down are getting more and more limited. Right. So speaking of delivery, so one of the things that's interesting, I was on Uber Eats the other day, and I, I used Uber Eats, I used DoorDash, et cetera, and I, I saw McDonald's on there. And I think McDonald's has probably been on there for a while. But yeah, they have. so fascinating to me to see, you know, the the, the Your the $5 meal now for $12? Right, exactly. <laughs> Delivered directly to your house? And to your house. So first of all, fries never get, you know, they never taste the same way after delivery. Right. But... The other piece is I wonder how much that actually affects your industry, right? So the scenario of, of people being able to have access to fast food where they don't have to go out and get it, it just comes to them. Does that affect? Kind of- I mean, it, do- it does, but we sort of think about like total share of stomach. Um, and there's, there's, a, there's a variety of things that drive trends to food service versus grocery. Um, certainly the delivery is limiting um, is is taking over some share from somewhere, um, but but I I posit that the delivery services are more fit for single individual households. Um, you know, it'd probably be a lot more efficient for for snacks, I guess. But we're still pretty insular right now. There's like it's always been kind of a fifty fifty dollars split between food service, what we call traditionally food service, and like traditional grocery shopping. So we haven't seen a huge hit. What I will say is that if it if if the price becomes more of a less of a mitigating factor, that could right. become very different. Yeah. But people like to cook. They like to um, even simple stuff. They like to. It's a nuisance sometimes, uh, but I think especially as you build family, it's the one area that maintains its consistency in terms of like it's the way to connect with one another. Now I think that's probably slipping because. You know, our lives are getting busier and it's getting harder to get things accomplished, but we, we tend to not worry about it too much. Also, we sell stuff through food service, so we just got to be diversified. Yeah. Got to diversify your portfolio. Absolutely. So you mentioned Scott Galloway. I'm a huge fan as well. Um, so I, I know he was, I, I, I believe I saw the same uh, presentation where he was talking about the click and collect. How much of you, how much of, of of what you're seeing? I mean, does, does Conagra play around with the AI assistance and in terms of how you think about you know Google Home and Amazon Alexa and like where do you see that going as it relates to the kind of CPG industry? Yes, we do, and I think the skills uh, and the, the things that you can do with the tools are completely underutilized at this point. I think people think that they're stupid, and, and that's largely because I think most people just play music through them. But when you start looking under the hood on like what the Echo can do and what you can do, with, or I'm sorry, what you can do with Alexa as a voice assistant and how you can control and modulate your voice and how you can intersync it with other applications, it's it's really impressive. And I think the, the, the first thing that people are going to start thinking about with a virtual assistant is not hey, I'm talking to it and it delivers a piece of information. What they really want is for that thing to know them. 
And so we've done a little bit of work trying to understand, like, what do they really want out of that experience? And honestly, what people describe, I'm not going to, this is not a secret. They want it to be an all-knowing, helpful butler that does everything for them and knows everything about you. And I guess over time, that's going to be what we're going to get. Yeah. I guess. It sounds a little bit frightening, but I don't really ever get all that scared about the technology because we're ultimately in charge of it until we're not. Right. And then why worry (laughs) at that point? But I I think there's – I think what it doesn't do today well and having worked for almost a decade of my life trying to make computers talk to people so I get valuable information out of them, um, it doesn't talk to you like a person. It doesn't. Now, the applications that Google has came out with that sound like a person sound freaky because it sounds literally like a person. And that's not that's not what you want. You don't want somebody that's where it's like, "Mm -hmm, yeah, yeah, okay, okay. Because that freaks you out. That turns on the synapses in your head like, oh, this is mimicking a person, and mimicking a person is either funny or frightening. If it's helpful and still has a rah, 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 boy, voice or whatever, some customized voice or some voice of like, say, because we're all, because that sounds like some sort of different accent, it might work. But because it sounds so much like a person, I think it, it trips a, like a weird, like creepy factor. Eventually, maybe people don't care. My kids probably don't care. They probably think it's awesome. But I think it, teaching the computers to talk to people like they're people in terms of like how I would respond to you and be helpful is probably the best way right now. Right now, it's just kind of like, I got your timer for you. I got your music for you. Yeah, absolutely. And in ConAgra was one of the first companies I believe that had the like the Amazon dash buttons with the like the Orville red box. We made investments with that right away. I, I think uh, for us, it's it, being a fast follower on anything that Amazon has. I think is useful for us because they're they made such a emphasis on becoming a grocery retailer. Absolutely, good stuff. So so talking a little bit more about the the role of technology as it as you think about kind of. Um, the, the the consumer of the future. What other pieces of technology do you think are helping kind of in, enable the, the consumer? Um, well, certainly cell phones, all the AR kits on the phones, making more immersive experiences, all that's been really beneficial. Um, I think, you know, we spend a lot of time trying to think about how to show up differently now. Um, for us, you know, we're trying to drive mindshare or mental availability of our brands. And, you know, with a broad set of brands, that becomes very difficult. So, so one of the things we're trying to think about is consumers are trying to interact with their feeds or with, with marketing in some way or fashion, content, let's call it. We're looking for ways that we can enable multiple pieces of content to show up when consumers have a need present. And, and communicating in the right way, in the right format, through the right channel in a way that, that is impactful to them. That they're like, oh, God, I just I am having this problem right now. And we show up, we're like, yeah, we know, we'd love to help you with that. It seems like, you know, at their at the start of the school year, you really need some ideas for dinner. We'd like to show up in a, in a, in a useful way. I think the assistance could become that way because there's nothing worse than when you get home or you have that three o'clock freak out with you and your significant other. You're like, what are we making for dinner tonight? If there was something there that could insert itself and is like, this is what you made the last four Thursdays or whatever, so you could pull from something you know, or here's something just like that. Like those kind of things, I think are are what we're trying to figure out how to crack because it's all about just giving people a nudge to say, "Listen, you make tacos every Monday, make enchiladas once. Right? You'll just split it. It'll be Mix fine. It It'll be fine. You just look at your Mexican day, and it's great." So we're trying to find ways that we can utilize technology and where people are and how they're using it today to kind of impact their lives. So. As far as collaboration goes and fostering that culture of innovation at ConAgra, I know you've mm-hmm. done a lot to drive that forward. Talk to me a little bit about that, how you think about that from a collaboration um, standpoint and just making sure new ideas kind of surface to the top. Well, one, I'm an intense person, so I connect people intensely, and um, I tend to uh, – what I found is that there are a lot of different groups that are in isolation across our large, large organization. And the best thing to do is to kind of like just show up in their space, show them something that you're working on, some perspective. So like have a take and don't suck. I think like Jim, Jim Rome used to talk about that uh, when he had his radio show. Like come into presence of people you don't know, be humble and ask them questions about their space, but then ultimately provide them a perspective. So like I'm going to go and talk to a function within our group later this 
this week that I've never dealt with before that manages a different part of our business, but it has a it has a good impact on how we might be perceived uh, in the marketplace. And one of the things I'm very aware of when I go into that situation, because I'm collaborating with them the first time, is they have no idea who I am. They have no idea why I'm talking about their space. They're going to be probably actively ready to tell me I don't know what I'm talking about and what I'm doing. And so I have to approach that from a mindset of, okay, I'm ready for all those questions so I can respond in a way that's responsible and says I'm just here to help. And then I have to have a series of questions that they are enamored by or interested in or spark interest in that shows them that I'm curious about what they're curious about. And that's to me how I drive collaboration because nobody wants to work with anybody because they have to or because they're important or whatever. People want to work with people that are passionate about the same things they're passionate about. So you try and meet people where they are and and try and foster the problem. The other part of that is that you, you're then on the hook to help them out. Okay, so when you collaborate, you're not there to get something from somebody. You're there to give, and right. so that's the part you have to kind of have a, a very empathetic and useful approach to to approaching people to, to build better relationships. Yeah, collaboration's tough. I, I I probably do it better professionally than I do personally, honestly, um, because it has a monetary impact. <laughs> 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 so we know that uh, obviously from a location standpoint, you're just uh, you know one floor above 1871. Right. Same I, floor, I try not right? to hold that over you guys. <laughs> <laughs> um, so talk to talk to me a little bit about the importance of of that relationship with 1871. I I, I, I knew uh, from my previous experience working at a small company and my my background from my parents holding a small company that. I had not seen, I'd seen a well-run business in my own household, but it wasn't really a startup. It was kind of, it's a manufacturing kind of like skills industry job. And I had worked for kind of what was essentially a startup, but without much like startup backing, knowledge from other startups and other entrepreneurs. So the minute I heard we were moving to the Mart and the 1871 was here, I was like, okay, well, at minimum, I'm going to go see what I can learn over there. And I, you know, very quickly I met, you know, you and Jason and others at EX3, and you took us through kind of an innovation day that that was useful, incredibly useful for me, and useful for the organization to kind of think about what was possible. But I think the incubator itself, and the way it was set up, and the way that it the community helps itself, is. Without getting too corny, it's like a it's like a mini version of America. It's like an it is an I thought incubator. That's a very creative term for the Silicon Valley folks or whatever. But you realize that's what it is. It's a it's a place where you can find resources to help you grow, and it's incredibly creative. And there's a lot of dynamics moving through it. There's a lot of people moving through it. A lot of businesses moving through it. Mm-hmm. And so, to me, it just shows a different view of like, okay, this is how things start, and this is how things get supported, and this is how you can create growth for things. And I think it's done a little bit to show me that perspective, that there's different types of businesses. There's lots of passionate people. It certainly taught me a lot about how uh, a generation of folks is probably never going to get bogged down trying to think about building a career at a single place for a long period of time, which makes I mean makes me a little sad and it cuts against my core values, right, a little bit, because I like to be at a place for a long period of time. But that's not everybody's bag, so I get it. Um, it it's inspiring to come here too, man. I mean, like there's a lot of creative people doing wild stuff that like I'm just like, what in the world? And and honestly, I when I look at some of it I get worried. Like I have an intense amount of worry. Like, are they going to make it? What happens if they don't? Like, right. I'm really, I'm like very nervous for everybody <laughs> here because <laughs> I'm just like, don't you want to get out and have something stable? And if you have that conversation with anybody around here, they're like, what are you talking about? Why? <laughs> and typically it's because like nobody has like as many kids as I have. <laughs> and I feel like I have ample responsibility to make sure they're okay. Yeah, it definitely. <laughs> the risk that you guys take is just, it's, it's impressive. Yeah, there's definitely a level of energy here. It's certainly a level of, of excitement. Um, you mentioned the Innovation Day. I, I, I want to thank you and ConAgra Brands again for your involvement in that. Um, 
we we held that innovation day and kind of did a consumer of the future where we yeah. kind of showcased drones and augmented reality and all these other scenarios and then a design thinking session but one of the the things that I was most proud of coming out of that was um, we donate a percentage of our revenue to something called the immersive learning lab mission yeah and you were the first company that participated in that which was allowed us to put over 30 uh, virtual and augmented reality devices at Pullman Elementary School. Mm-hmm. And we did this big ribbon cutting ceremony. Yeah, it was awesome. Was there? So I just want to thank you again for that because that uh, we're still seeing the effects of that and still seeing all the all these different comments that are coming in to say how impactful that was for that school. So thank you again. Well, thank you for that. the update on that. I mean, like I had a viewfinder when I was like nine years old. I used to look like <laughs> He Man Masters Universe inside the thing. Right. And like seeing the kids like actually be able to put on those headsets was like super heartwarming. We don't get to, I don't get to do stuff like that very often my family was like really they were like you did i was like i i just managed the money and these guys it was this guy's idea to like go out there but it also i mean i'm i've only lived in illinois for like five years so so it 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 brought me to a part of city i was unfamiliar with it brought me to a set of people that i probably wouldn't have interacted with before um so that experience was just awesome um I think I told you at some point in time, like it was the it was like one of the good things. I'm mean, like, what year do we do that? Last year was that last year? I think what I think it was about a year. Year we just came up. The yeah, so it was like yeah. outside of like family things. Like it was in a great year in 2017. There's a lot of like crazy stuff going on in the culture right now, and that like was one thing I was like, well, did a small bit of good here. Yeah. Did a good bit of good. You also brought up the fact, which I think is like a, like you learned to code in public school. Is that what you said, right? Yeah, at, well, at a public library. Public library. Yeah. Which is a story you should say more often. I think that's that's endearing, Adam. It's, it's like, you're like, wow, this kid, where did he come from? Just working on a little library. Like, I mean, what, what was what the code? Was. What was the code you learned first? So the, HTML? It was HTML and then CSS and then JavaScript. And then it. it, it How old were you when you learned JavaScript? Oh, I was in my early 20s. Um, okay. I was, I, I, was, I was out of college. I was like thinking like a precocious, like 13 year old, just no, trying to read it JavaScript. Wasn't that books. Young. Although I, I did learn kind of. The turtle graphics, um, you know, when I was in third grade, that was my first coding class. But I, I didn't actually do anything after that. I always was fascinated with computers, but I I went to school for marketing. I didn't study computer science, and then I got I got reengaged, kind of as an as an adult, and I had completely learned how to code. As an incoming library. freshman at Iowa, they gave us a how to build your own website course, and like I was like. Ugh, this is so much like formatting and stuff. <laughs> I was like, I, nobody's going to make any money coding. And I, I was so dumb, so dumb at the time. Cause they were like, yeah, no, I mean, if you're interested, we can, we have all these courses and I'm like, whatever. Um, I don't think I would have, it would have been a good fit for me though. I don't think I could have been as disciplined as it's required. It's like learning a different language. It is. Yeah. 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 I, I only got one. And the, the, it's crazy. The libraries, there's, such great resources to go to to be able to learn that stuff. And ironically, it was a mixture of a book plus there was some online courses, lynda.com. One of the things about Linda, yeah. lynda.com, I think, was a subscription-based service. And at the time, I mean, I'm, I'm, I can, am I going to pay for a subscription? The library had it for free. If you have your library card, you go in there. You can great. sit down and you learn it and get good good at it. And America's greatest institution, libraries. Absolutely. Outside of maybe like national parks, but, you know. When the libraries all go away, we'll only have the parks. Um. <laughs> <laughs> Good stuff. So, so last last question, which is the most important one. So, if if there's one app on your phone that you can't live without, um, w- w- which one would that be? So, I heard a uh, an interview with Dwayne Wade and and LeBron James together, and Dwayne was talking about how cheap LeBron was, <laughs> and he was saying that he listens to. Uh, ad-supported Pandora, <laughs> which I thought was so funny for, like, a billion-dollar athlete. And he was, like, unapologetic about right. it, right? LeBron's right. like, oh, man, I'm to save my dollars or whatever he said. Um, I thought it was so funny. And I cannot live without YouTube on my phone. So I um, – and it, it has – I do not – buy youtube i listen to all the advertisements and i build like an annual playlist of typically like live music or music i run into during the year and i play it every sunday while i make dinner for my kids and then i probably stream youtube constantly and my kids watch an insane amount of youtube of like the gobbledygook stuff like that that is like generated by ai so i don't think i could ever live without it if you guys want to 
I think Burger King just recently built an AI set of advertisements. I'm a little off topic from this YouTube thing. You guys ought to look it up. It is the the craziest amalgamation of language. And it reminds me exactly of what my kids watch on YouTube, like these 30-minute videos that are all generated by artificial intelligence that are like, they're not fully like complete sentences. It's just, it's wild. So the variety on YouTube of what I want to find, like I can go and find, uh, like Bonnie Raitt singing with some other guy in 1979 at some concert. And it's just like, you're at this place. And I remember going back to uh, Napster, I would always go and find some sort of like rare bootleg. Mm -hmm. YouTube has everything, like live streaming concerts, all that stuff. And so I I can't live without that thing, man. Well, thank you, Thatcher, for for stopping by. We truly love to have you as a guest. And and thank you again for all your support of EX3 Labs and uh, continued support and and continue to uh, innovate at ConAgra. Thanks so much. I appreciate the time. Absolutely. Quick update. Since this interview was recorded, ConAgra announced the completion of the acquisition of Pinnacle Foods. Remember to subscribe to Unlocking Innovation wherever you listen to podcasts and be sure to rate and review. To stay up to date with EX3 Labs news and events, follow us on social media. We're at EX3 Labs. See you next time.